It is a prime ingredient that fuels the fires of imagination. Amid countless eons past, it fanned a spark ignited by a primeval author, chiseling arcane petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. This life-giving current once grew papyrus for paper and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. Carried across the land since before the dawn of time, it is the breath that gave rise to dinosaurs and has since walked on the surface of the moon. Manifesting as a placid breeze, it stirs memories of childhood, or as a turbulent vortex, ripping up the pages of history. Powered by this influence, we dream, love, laugh, hate and destroy. In short, live out our lives. A gust of this disturbance carries the potential to scatter fog surrounding the unknown. Drifting through frequencies of time and space, thin air is inhaled for the first time and exhaled at the last. Don't try to catch your breath. You could not remove a single grain of sand from its place without thereby changing something throughout all parts of the immeasurable whole. Johann Gottlieb Fichte, 1800. So there I was, standing in line at an airport gift shop in Miami with a bottled water, waiting for my connecting flight to Thailand to begin boarding. Mindlessly tapping a finger on the cold plastic, I happened to glance over at an impressive collection of games and toys that were all spread out on a low table, down at what was strategically kids' eye level. Conspicuously displayed on the table nearest me was one of those puzzle cubes, the ones that you have to twist and turn to get the colors to match up on all sides. Rubik's Cube, that's what they're called. Strangely drawn to the toy, I picked it up with my free hand and looked it over closely. A thought came to mind. Spinning a few of the rows until the puzzle was completely messed up, I suddenly realized that I was in control of a complex outcome. My actions able to arrange a mixed up series of colored squares into the proper alignment. What if, I conjectured, I could somehow arrange a series of dimensional portholes so that when I jumped through, I would be able to dial in a specific destination? What if I could plot a direct pathway through space and time that would lead me back to Capra? My pulse quickened. This was definitely worth careful consideration and I had plenty of time on my way across the states and then over the Pacific to mull things over. Did you find everything you were looking for? The cashier asked. Placing the cube and my bottled water on the counter, I replied, I may have just found more than I bargained for. The cashier chuckled politely. Where are you off to today? She asked me. Miami to Phuket. Thailand by way of Bangkok. Believe it or not, I'm about to cash in a week's vacation time aboard a floating luxury hotel called the SS 
American Star, a vintage ocean liner that's anchored there, flying halfway around the world to take a cruise. I shook my head as she handed me the bag containing my purchases. Makes no sense at all, does it? I asked. My travels are as jumbled and random as my newfound Rubik's Cube. Thanks, miss. I tucked the bag under my arm and headed out across the concourse in the general direction of my departure gate. A quick glance at my phone told me I had less than 10 minutes to board and, having never flown out of Miami before, I was completely unaware of how distant the gate might actually be. Picking up the pace, I strode along the moving walkway, dodging other travelers side to side as I went along. Single-mindedly focused on catching my flight, I barely noticed at first when a man's voice started calling out from somewhere nearby. Excuse me, sir, I beg your pardon? He said. Glancing over my shoulder, I was surprised to see a sharply dressed military officer standing on the parallel walk moving in the opposite direction. He was walking back against the flow of people moving down the concourse behind me. Judging by all the stripes and medals, this guy wasn't someone I could just easily ignore. You speaking to me? I asked him. Ah, yes, in fact I am. He responded. It's the strangest thing, like you've got an aura or something. Wouldn't have given it a second thought, but then... It's like that crazy deja vu thing. I swear we've met somewhere before. My name is Theodore Sutton, Commander, USN. Set off any red flags for you? I scratched my chin thoughtfully and looked him over, head to toe, as he continued treading against the unrelenting walk that was doing its best to drag him away. I'm sorry, Commander. No eerie sense that we've ever crossed paths in this or any other lifetime. Excuse me, please, I called back to him. I've got a plane to catch. The man rolled his eyes and scoffed. Suit yourself. Sorry to have bothered you. Mr. Addison, is it? As if his words carried with them the power of a supplication, I turned about, only to discover he was already on an escalator headed down to who knows where, and I was now at risk of missing my flight if I didn't keep moving. Anyone else might have found the odd encounter sufficient cause to investigate further, but in my case, I was on a mission. An all-encompassing obsession to find my way back to the one place on Earth that holds any promise at all of carrying me into the future. Turns out, I confirmed my boarding pass with plenty of time to spare and ended up sitting down for several more minutes before first-class seating was announced. Shelving my carry-on satchel in the overhead compartment, I settled into the window seat and allowed myself several deep breaths to relax. What the hell was that all about? I asked myself. Commander Theodore Sutton, USN. Not a clue. Of course, the question nagged at me, enough that I barely realized that the stewardess had already gone through the motions with oxygen mask and seat belt, already pointed out the floor lighting and emergency exits, 
already departed the cabin so the flight could get underway. The big jet turbine nacelle beneath the wing started spinning up to speed, loud enough to snap me back to reality, and several minutes later we had taxied to the runway for takeoff. Oh well, I thought, not a first run-in with the unexplained. As the tires left the tarmac, and that little dose of disorienting, adrenaline-tinged euphoria brought back lingering memories of spaceflight, I closed my eyes and tried hard to focus my thoughts on something else. Sadly, all that came to mind was a runaway railroad car. No help at all. Looking over at the passenger seated next to me, I blurted out, Up, up, and away! Of course, she smiled politely, even though I imagine she was much less concerned about our angle of ascent than I was. Winking, I finished the conversation with, Not achieving orbit this time around. Have you ever had the impression that day-to-day -day life has you spread far, far too thin? Not enough jelly on your toast. Too little cream in your coffee. Perhaps you ask yourself, why? If only there were more of me to go around, perhaps I could accomplish everything that needs to be done before the day is out. Have my cake. Eat it, too. Be careful what you wish for, because it sounds to me like you're summoning your own doppelganger, an alternate version of yourself, to act in your stead. It does beg the question, though, doesn't it? If parallel planes of existence do somehow interact, wouldn't it stand to reason that you might catch sight of yourself coming and going? Tate Addison now finds himself seated on what we might call a different plane of existence. Next to him is an opening, a tempered pane of glass granting him a fleeting glimpse at a missing piece of the puzzle. Will he arrange infinite space-time so that it leads to a solution? The air is thin out there, Mr. Addison, and the eye plays tricks on all that remains to be seen. Oddly, I heard the low, rhythmic drone of a propeller-driven aircraft engine long before it ever occurred to me that our current cruising altitude was most certainly higher than such an engine could effectively function. Caught somewhere in that transitional state between waking and sleeping, I thought at first that I had, in fact, drifted off and started dreaming. Sure enough, a short distance off the wingtip of the airliner flew an old warbird. Stranger still, it seemed to be pacing us, flying alongside as if caught in some kind of unlikely jet stream. Pressing my face against the glass, I could make out a number three, etched in block lettering across the side of the fuselage, and again, high up on the vertical stabilizer. Try as I might, 
I could not make out much more than a dark silhouette through the cockpit canopy, just enough of an outline to prove that there was someone, in fact, at the controls. Strange. I knew enough about aviation history to identify the aircraft as a Navy Avenger. That particular detail gave me cause to ponder whether it was more than a coincidence that I happened to cross paths with a naval commander who thought he knew who I was, in fact did know, having called out my name in passing at the airport. Looking away, I shouted, Stewardess? Excuse me, stewardess? It took a bit of time for her to respond as she made her way down the aisle, past sleeping passengers, to finally stop next to me and ask, Can I help you, Mr. Addison? Pointing an agitated finger over my shoulder, I said, That old plane out there looks like a Navy Avenger, I think. It's a World War II vintage U.S. Navy torpedo bomber. Are we flying over an air show or something? I mean, I know those stunt pilots are damn good at all kinds of aerobatics, but isn't it just a little too close to us? Which also begs the question, if we're at cruising altitude, how the heck is an old propeller aircraft flying out there like he's our wingman? The stewardess leaned her elbow against the aisle chair in front of mine and squinted to look out the window. After a moment, she turned and shook her head at me. Nothing there that I can see, Mr. Addison. Must have been a reflection on the outside of the glass. I returned my gaze to peer out across our wing and saw that she was right. Nothing there. Nerves, I guess, I told her. A little jittery about a flight all the way to Thailand. She glanced down at my lap and gestured. Isn't that why you brought along a Rubik's Cube? I'd already turned several sides of the cube in the airport gift shop, though not sufficiently enough in my mind to present a real challenge. It took me about 15 minutes more of twisting and turning absent-mindedly rearranging the puzzle into a jumbled mess before I figured it would unquestionably take plenty of time aboard this trip across the pond to sort out. The damn thing already looked frustrating as hell as I turned it end over end, wondering where to start. Figuring it really made no difference whatsoever, I briefly entertained the notion that I could simply retrace my steps spin everything back in the opposite direction. I knew there was no conceivable way of doing this, but it does seem to be a typical knee-jerk reaction when faced with the outwardly unknown. As I started trying to work things out, I remembered the reason I picked up the frustrating little gadget in the first place. Each smaller cube making up the whole was now a scrambled mosaic and completely unrelated to every other neighboring companion piece. In relationship to my own dilemma, I recalled my first encounter aboard the American Star shipwreck. Spiraling portals, openings to other places and other times, unrelated and yet somehow part of a much larger totality.
At the spur of the moment, my first leap into the wispy opening of choice, there was hardly anything close to an educated guess. I wanted off the boat, pure and simple, so I jumped. Of course, I left everything up to chance and the 50-50 outcome provided by the flip of my coin. Destroyed shipwreck to a derelict railroad coach in the blink of an eye. Wilderness riverbed to Soviet launch platform. Crumbling building collapse to seaside park. Round and round we go. There and back again. Chance or by design. A sum of the parts and the outcome of my decisions to leap are all somehow a part of the puzzle and yet seemingly unrelated. I turned the cube in my hands until I managed to create a cluster of blue squares side by side. The accomplishment was momentarily satisfying, yet hardly productive to the final solution. Five blue portals, an amorphous shape, proof that the problem was not easily soluble. In my case, what grand design or omnipresent consciousness possessed the wherewithal to rotate all the tumblers into place? Seems pretty intimidating at first glance, doesn't it? The voice snapped me back from my rambling train of thought like a crack of thunder. Glancing around the cabin that was now dimly lit and conducive to sleep, I noticed a single individual looking back at me from across the aisle. Open to striking up a conversation, I held up the Rubik's Cube and sighed quietly. More futile than I imagined when I bought the thing, I replied. Certainly not a relaxing way to pass the time. The man stood from his companion window seat, excused himself past another dozing passenger next to him, and sat down in the unoccupied chair beside me. Plucking the puzzle from my hand, he examined my progress and chuckled. I don't think relaxation was the intent when these things were invented, he said. More a way of showing off your powers of observation and analytical thought. The man extended his hand in greeting. The name's Archie Wilcott, software engineer and, coincidentally, competitive speedcuber champ at WRCC. I can solve this for you, if you like. Wilcott looked intently at my puzzle. Probably take six or seven minutes, tops, he predicted. You haven't really mixed things up much. The notion that I could simply turn my little distraction over to an expert was just far too intriguing to pass up. My GameCube is really more of a metaphor, Archie. Something I thought might help me arrive at a solution to a problem much more vast and far-reaching than that little object you're holding. I'm intrigued, he responded. Go on. I took back the Rubik's Cube and rotated it until my little grouping of blue was gone. You might say I'm a passenger in search of a destination. Gesturing to the puzzle, I scoffed. This is what my roadmap looks like. Plenty of combinations, none of which get me where I need to go in and of themselves. Up to now, 
I've been letting random chance decide which way to spin the pathways I take, and no choice, as to the vehicles I ride, to get there. I need to somehow take control of the arrangement, plan ahead which points of interest are going to make this little vacation of mine a worthwhile exercise. I need to line up the route that's going to take me back to some place I arrived at by accident the first time around. A place, a time, a tourist attraction like no other. Archie eyed me sympathetically. You're looking for someone, aren't you? Someone special. Someone worth crisscrossing vast distances to participate in a long-awaited rendezvous. You need a traveling companion uh, to share a lifetime of continental breakfasts and romantic seaside dinners with. You're trying to chart a course back to your soulmate. I sighed. You're very perceptive, Mr. Wilcott. Tell me, if you were in my shoes and this, I said, pointing to the cube, were your only guide pointing out the way you should walk, how would you choose to proceed? Archie looked thoughtful as he considered my question. After a moment, he replied, Study the game closely. If there are individual components like the tiles on your Rubik's Cube, understand each of them thoroughly. Look at the relationships and how they pertain to the sum of all the parts. Observe the problem from every conceivable side and anticipate your next move well in advance. Count cards. Look for ways to reach checkmate. Right now, you're just a pawn on the board. A tile on a cube with three billion combinations and only one solution. Every game is winnable. You just need to understand the rules. Archie stood and ducked down beneath the overhead console, quietly making his way back to his assigned seat. Once he had seated himself, he tucked a small airline pillow under his cheek and closed his eyes wearily. Just before nodding off to sleep, he raised his hand where I could see it and gave me a thumbs up. Out of the corner of his mouth, he said softly, My guess is you're not the only player. Your Rubik's Cube is like playing solitaire. As sure as I'm sitting here, I'll wager that there's someone across the board from you playing by identical rules, hoping for an identical outcome. Whoever or whatever they are, they're playing right along with you. Stow the cube in the overhead bin. It's much too one-sided for your purposes. Just a chunk of plastic, not a metaphor. I've no idea whether or not the stewardess noticed when I stood up and chucked my Rubik's Cube into the bin. Good riddance, I added, as it bounced noisily to the back of the cabinet and came to rest on top of a stack of complimentary airline blankets. If she thinks it's such a great way to pass the time, she's more than welcome to it. 
a dead-end feasibility study now effectively discarded. I pulled out the pouch below the tray table in front of me and groped around inside for some kind of magazine or in-flight catalog. As luck would have it, there actually was reading material in there, though definitely not the standard issue airline periodical. Unusual Destinations The title was, by no means, indicative of the run-of-the-mill travel guide with 20 pages of ad space and a single article. Whoever had occupied this particular seat assignment on the flight before me must have stuffed it in the pouch and forgotten it was there. Satisfied that this little gem of reading material could certainly hold my attention in the short term at least, I tipped my seat back to a reclining position and switched on the reading light. Opening the magazine to the index page, I started to scan down the bullet point list for the most provocative story title I could find. Idly skipping past some tiresome, over-publicized account concerning missing planes and the Bermuda Triangle, the second heading, on the other hand, quite nearly caused me to faint dead away. Phuket's Fallen Star, the shipwreck of lost tourists, exclusive story on page 37. Quickly thumbing several pages in, I opened to a two-page spread and felt all the blood instantaneously drain from my face. A glossy photograph of Fengna Bay, Thailand displayed the landmark rock formations I recognized from my date with Capra, visible out a window in the Pacific restaurant of the American Star. Looking like a wretched, rotting corpse resting partially submerged in what was once a beautiful seascape was the mere image of the beached and broken vessel on Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands. Dear God, I gasped, what in the name of everything holy is going on? Quickly poring over the related story, it would seem that somehow things turned out differently yet again for the American star this time around. She was towed successfully to Thailand, only to run aground as she was being maneuvered into place as a floating hotel. The underwater rocks tore a massive hole in the hull, and the ship split down the middle. The aft immediately flooded and sank to the floor of the bay, leaving the bow stranded on a shallow plateau to become an infamous eyesore in an otherwise pristine vista. The sudden realization that I was on a plane bound for the same ruined vessel filled me with an odd mix of excitement and fear. The wreck was my apparent pathway to Capra, yes. To get to her, however, I would have to risk my life several times over once again along the way. An involuntary spasm of tension balled my hand into a clenched fist, instantly tearing out several pages of the magazine caught in my palm. As the crumpled paper pulled free of the staples holding it in place, an odd thing happened. There before me was the feature story. Retro 
causality, the end is only the beginning. Beneath the large block letters of the story title was a caption, an italicized quote from the writer. It read, It's called a casual loop. A billiard ball strikes its past self, knocking it straight on into the corner pocket. Let's assume for a moment that this pocket just so happens to be a wormhole. The ball moves in a path toward the wormhole and drops in. The future self of the billiard ball emerges from the wormhole before its past self enters it, giving its past self a glancing blow, altering the past ball's path and causing it to enter the wormhole at an angle that would cause its future self to strike its past self the very glancing blow that altered its path. In this sequence of events, the change in the ball's path is its own cause, which might appear paradoxical. Letting the magazine fall on my lap, I whispered, Not a pool ball. Not a Rubik's Cube. A coin. A newly minted piece of loose change with no beginning and no ending. I closed my eyes tightly and smiled. Here we go again. I had to see it to believe it. Still, the sight before me, even now, remained altogether unbelievable. It was the wreck of the American star, all right, down to the very last ruined detail. Honestly, had it not been for the towering columns of rock that were a signature detail of Fangna Bay off the coast of Phuket, I could have sworn I had somehow mistakenly returned to the Canary Islands. It didn't just resemble the broken bow, it was one and the same, identical down to the last corroded rivet. Completely dumbfounded, I sat down in the sand and clutched two fistfuls just to assure myself this wasn't some kind of a waking dream or a delusion conjured to life by wishful thinking. I cried out across the surf, How can you be here? This is all very, very wrong. Of course, I already knew that the star was good at keeping her secrets, and there would be no confession forthcoming, just an occasional ping or clank of rusted metal, broken pieces of a puzzle scattered across the ocean from here to Fuerteventura. You're right. You're not supposed to be here any more than that rusted hulk out there. The voice startled me. Glancing around my immediate proximity, I spotted a withered old wisp of a man slowly making his way across the beach, carrying a metal detector. As he gradually tilted the device side to side on the way, he continued, Not supposed to have happened this way? Not at all, my boy. The old chicken or the egg conundrum. You hooked up the cart before the horse. The man never even so much as looked up from beachcombing, not even a sideways glance, 
just kept on walking idly by, like he was intentionally avoiding any kind of further inquiry or discussion. He wasn't getting off quite so easily. I'm looking for a way back in, I exclaimed, figuring my response was mysterious enough to catch the old man off guard. I know you are, Mr. Addison. You and that other fella down in Florida, he said. With that, I stood and started splashing through the tidewater after him. Wait, what? What other fella? How do you know my name? Who the hell are you, anyway? I shouted. Unfazed, the old beachcomber just kept walking away, swinging the detector. Right before he finally disappeared around an outcropping of rock, he shouted back at me over his shoulder. His name was Addison, too. Pilot. What the sea dogs call a naval aviator. I hear tell he went out looking for his Avenger torpedo bomber where he lost it. Somewhere's in that spot they call the Bermuda Triangle. Then he was gone. No answers, just more questions. Sighing, I turned my attention back to the shipwreck. It was now late evening, and the shadowy outline of the broken liner out there was more than just a little bit ominous. Actually, downright terrifying. Nonetheless, I started wading out into the water toward it in a kind of deja vu euphoria, like lightning that was just about ready to strike twice. Deeper and deeper I treaded, until all at once I heard a voice shouting down from what sounded like somewhere high up on the deck of the ship. Desperate and pleading, the man cried out, Hey! hey up, here! up here! Then, No! Don't come any closer! You'll be dragged out into the surf! I stopped dead in my soggy tracks when I heard the words. Knew exactly who had spoken them. I could make out the vague form of a man running from the top deck down a flight of creaking, rusted stairs to the promenade, desperately trying to reach the waterline in time to save me from cruel fate. Knowing full well that he would never hear my reply, I felt it my singular responsibility to convey to him anyway. He tried to warn me. It was my turn to return the favor. Tate! I shouted. Don't pick up the coin! Please, Tate! Just leave it behind and keep moving forward! I know he missed the warning. He never heard it, because I never did. What I still don't know is how and why I was gone by the time he reached the bottom of the ladder. Then I found out. At first, no more than a subtle sensation, a slight swirling motion in the waist-high water surrounding me. As the pull rapidly increased and started tugging me off balance in a counterclockwise rotation, I saw that I was standing dead center in a shimmering whirlpool. 
an expanding liquid vortex that seemed to be forming specifically on my behalf. As the waters swirled faster and deeper all around me, the telltale signs of a glowing dimensional portal lit up the churning water and started swallowing me like temporal quicksand. The last image burned indelibly across my retinas as I sank down my next space-time rabbit hole was yesterday's tape as he started making his way down the ladder. If you've ever hearkened back to a time long ago when you did something reckless and impulsive, something you wish you could go back and warn yourself about, you understand Tate's dilemma. No matter how much you want to undo a course of action and wonder what difference it would have made if you could, the die is seemingly cast. Then again, let's not jump to conclusions. If you still have questions concerning a time travel paradox called a casual loop, you're doing your business in a rare locale, a region known only as thin air. Episode 19 of the Thin Air Podcast Anthology, The Passenger, Season 2, Time Squared, was written, produced, directed, narrated, and told by R.J. Lonsdale. The voice of the airport gift shop cashier was performed by Nancy Cooper Wood, and the voice of the airline stewardess was performed by Janet Lonsdale. The voices of Tate Addison, Commander Sutton, Archie Wilcott, and the old beachcomber were performed by yours truly, R.J. Lonsdale. Audio production for this Thin Air episode by R.J. Lonsdale of Flyby Studios. Music compositions used in this episode include Mysterious City and Spring Thaw by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. This has been an R.J. Lonsdale Flyby Studios presentation.